Matthew chapter 22, where we find Jesus in Jerusalem on the week in which he'll be crucified. And we've been following him through this week, which continually brought him into very direct and intense conflict with the religious leaders of Jerusalem during that time. Now, we've, as we've studied the life of Matthew, or Jesus throughout Matthew, this conflict with the religious leaders, with the religious authorities, it was really a constant feature. It's something that comes up over and over again. It's something that we see over and over again. Um, but in the week leading up to his death on the cross, we see even this increasingly heightened level of conflict. And it's something that we're going to continue to see right up until it culminates in his death on the cross. We currently find ourselves at the end of chapter 22 in Matthew. And studying this exchange between Jesus and two important religious groups of his time. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, Like Alejandro taught Wednesday night, these are two groups, like the two major um, divisions of Judaism during the time of Jesus, and usually these two groups were very much in conflict with one another. But in Jesus, these two groups, which were usually in major conflict with one another, actually find a common ground in their hatred of Jesus. And what, as Alejandro mentioned, what they've been doing in the second part, second half of chapter 22 that we've been studying in the recent weeks is challenging Jesus and his authority. Trying to discredit Jesus by asking him questions about the law, looking to either discredit him with the Roman authorities because they would have loved to have put Jesus to death. But remember, they're under Roman rule at this time, and the Romans had largely taken away their ability to carry out executing their enemies. The Romans held that right to themselves, so they thought with their first question, should he pay, should we pay taxes to Caesar, they thought, okay, we're going to, and that was what, in verse um, 15, right? Verse 15, they asked Jesus this first question, and should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because they think, okay, we've got Jesus. Because either one, he will say, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. And we can turn him over to the Roman government and they'll take care of him for us. Or he'll say, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar. And it's going to destroy his credibility with the, with the Jewish people. But Jesus confounds them with just answering them with wisdom beyond what they could have ever imagined right? And then they're like, okay, let's, the Sadducees decide that they're going to take a shot at Jesus with the second question that we studied this past Wednesday night, thinking, let's see how Jesus can handle the application of the law to just really an absurd circumstance. And remember, they, they questioned him on the issue of leveret marriage and this lady who had had seven husbands. And again, Jesus confounds them with his wisdom. Tonight, or this morning, the question is going to be related to the law of God. They want to see if they can trick Jesus by trapping him with a difficult question, making him look foolish when it comes to the law of God. When it comes to the question of, as the people of God, how should we live? And there's a lot of irony here, right? Because here you have sinful people who are extremely self-righteous and proud questioning the perfect, holy Son of God, questioning God himself. Yet what triumphs through these series of questions towards Jesus and his answering of these questions is Jesus reinforcing what the entire story what the entire message of Matthew is that Jesus is king Jesus is king and in all these questions Jesus is reinforcing that he truly is the rightful authoritative king yet just as important his kingship is over a kingdom that is far greater than any earthly kingdom 
far greater than anything material. The kingship of Jesus Christ is over an eternal kingdom. The greatest nations of this world, be it the United States now or Rome 2,000 years ago, the greatest nations of this world rise and at some point fall. It is only Christ's kingdom that will be eternal. So in verse 15 of chapter 22, we have the Pharisees who take their question to Jesus. Then, after he confounds them with his wisdom, the Sadducees decide, all right, let's, let's give it our shot. And again, Jesus confounds the Sadducees. And after showing down the Sadducees in verse 23, the Pharisees decide they're going to take another crack at it. Apparently, they don't learn very well. And so we're going to find the Pharisees again questioning Jesus, where we will pick up this morning in verse 34. And our passage this morning is 34 to 46. And we're going to look at this passage in two different parts. Part 1, verses 34 to 40, the Pharisees pose to Jesus a third of this series, the, the third question in this series of questions that we've been chap, uh, looking at in chapter 22. But then Jesus turns the tables on them in verse 41. In verse 41, Jesus decides, it's my turn to ask a question. I'm going to ask you a question. And in this question that Jesus asks, he's driving home the point that not only is he king, Yes, he is, but he is the eternal king, past, present, and future, far greater than any earthly king. His kingdom is everlasting, far greater than any earthly kingdom. So again, two parts. Let's look at part one here, a third and final question. Read with me verses 34 to 40 where we get our third and final question. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. We have here a third and final question. And we know Jesus has been successful. There's no, there's no doubt here that Jesus has been successful in each of these interactions with taking their question, not in any way being ensnared in the traps that they're laying for him with these questions and in in fact it's not just that he's failing to be ensnared it's the exact opposite the more they question the more his wisdom shines through the more confounded they are very far from being effective instead these questions are just glorifying and highlighting who Jesus Christ is and it says in verse 34 when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that's when they think, let's get another opportunity here. Again, these are two groups that don't normally get along. The Pharisees were not at all fans of the Sadducees, so they probably had some pretty mixed feelings when Jesus had answered and confounded them. It's their time to have another question to try to trap Jesus. So they huddle up, right? In verse 34, they gather themselves together. You can just see them sitting around, talking to one another, thinking, okay, we've got another shot at this. It didn't work the first time. The Sadducees weren't successful, but we got this. What is something that we can go to Jesus with where we can trap him in his own words and discredit him to the people? They were very threatened by Jesus. You see, that, that's why all this conflict is taking place. Because as Jesus, 
this is Palm Sunday. We remember the beginning of chapter 21, right? When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the very day that we commemorate today on Palm Sunday, the people were crying out, Hosanna, God, save us. They were crying out, Son of David. And while it's apparent that they don't recognize the fullness of who Jesus is as the Messiah, they're still calling out to him with this messianic language, which is a huge threat to the religious leaders of the time who not only did they lead the people as religious leaders, they used this religion as a form of oppression, as a form of controlling people, as a form of maintaining their own authority. And so it's really bad news for them and their earthly authority when Jesus shows up and the people are starting to hail him as the Messiah. Well, where does that leave the Pharisees, right? Not in a good place. And then Jesus goes right into the heart of the, of the temple and starts challenging their, their turning of the worship of God into some kind of business practice and starts overturning the money changers' ta tables, driving out the merchants. Again, a tremendous challenge to the authority of the Pharisees. So they're huddling up thinking, okay, who are we sending in this time? We've got to get rid of this Jesus. So they decide to send in, verse 36 tells us, or I'm sorry, verse 35, a lawyer. What's a lawyer? An expert in the law, right? That, that, that is their job, to be experts in the law. Think of this as the scribes, too. Probably a scribe right here. Scribes, they were experts in the Mosaic law. They were the Pharisees and the scribes, huge fans of the law, that's what they were known for, right? When you think of an expert in the law, you think of the scribes and the Pharisees. When you think of somebody who's a huge fan of the Old Testament law, you think of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they thought that through their expertise of the law and through their meticulous adherence to the law, that they could earn their way back into favor with God. So here we have an expert in the law among this group of people who love the law. And inevitably, part of this would have been a love to debate the law. Just like people do today. Do you notice there's a lot of people who really love to argue and just love to sit around and talk about ideas and argue over and politics, right? Like you've got people who just love to talk about politics and love to argue about politics. It's just what they do. There are lawyers and debaters who love to debate the law. That's why we have debate teams. I was on the debate team in high school, and I don't think I ever really loved it, but just the fact that there's a debate team just shows you that as human beings, people like to argue, right? And the Pharisees, they like to debate and discuss the law. They had, in fact, categories of here are the really important laws that we absolutely must hold on to and uh, all the time, and then here are some that are of lesser importance, and they would debate which go in to which categories. And so in the mind of the Pharisees with their legal expert, they say, let's go make sport of Jesus. Let's go ask him a question in which there is no real settled answer. Like, in fact, I think it's 613. It's at least just over 600 laws that the Pharisees had identified within the Old Testament. And so that was, you think about it, there's 600 different laws, and your standing before God depends on how well do you follow these 600 laws? Is that not a little bit overwhelming and intimidating? It should be. That should terrify you, right? But it makes sense if you're saying, okay, 600 laws, you got to keep these to be right with God. We better start arguing and debating which ones are the most important, which ones are the absolute necessary ones. But it was an argument. And it was a debate. And let's go put Jesus in the impossible position of telling us which is the most important. Because no matter what answer Jesus gives, somebody's going to be mad, right? Like, we don't agree on this. Let's go ask him. Let's get him in a place where somebody is going to be mad at Jesus. And here's the question in verse 36. Teacher, 
which is the great commandment in the law. Now remember, when they say the law here, they're speaking of the Old Testament, but most specifically of the first five books written by Moses. Again, 600-something laws, 613, I think, that they had drawn from this. And, um, and which one of these 600-some-odd laws is Jesus going to choose? You can imagine from an earthly standpoint, from a human standpoint, it's a pretty hard question, right? That is going to be really hard decision for Jesus from their perspective. Somebody's going to be mad. But do you think, based on what we've seen at this point in Matthew, do you expect Jesus to fall into a trap? Do you expect Jesus to not find his way out of this like they finally got him? No. If you've kept up with us and Matthew at all, you know what's about to happen. You don't know exactly how it's going to happen if you haven't read the story before. You don't know exactly what Jesus is going to say. And it's kind of like one of those suspenseful movies where you're like, you know, I have no doubt this is going to work out somehow, but I know it's going to work out, right? So like pretend you haven't read this before. You're like, hmm, how is Jesus going to find his way out? But you know he is. And not only is he going to find his way out, not only is he going to avoid the snare and the trap, but again, his wisdom is going to surpass our wildest imaginations. His wisdom is going to confound the Pharisees, this lawyer, and surpass even their wildest imaginations. What Jesus does, instead of looking at this body of 613, forgive me if that turns out to be the wrong number, does anybody know that by hand? I, somebody's got to know that here, right? 613? Thank you. I trust Mr. Teagle over there. 613? Yeah. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Instead of Jesus sifting through these 613 commandments and isolating any single law, instead, he is going to provide them with the guiding truth, the guiding principle on which all 613, or, and you could say that all the Old Testament hangs. And he does this. This is what is so fascinating and what Jesus continues to do over and over again. These people, the Pharisees, the scribe, they are supposed to be experts in the Mosaic Law. That is what they pride themselves in. And so Jesus is going to say, okay, you think you are such experts in the law? Let me answer this question by showing you what this law that you are so proud of actually says. So he's going to quote two passages out of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. The first one he, passaged, he quotes is known as the Shema. The Shema is just a Hebrew word for hear. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The very first word of Deuteronomy 6, 4 is the word Shema, the word hear. And so that's what this entire passage in Deuteronomy becomes known as. And that's what Jesus quotes in verses 37 and 38. And Jesus said to the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Do you see what this passage from Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes is saying? That the most important thing when it comes to your life as a child of God is that you love the Lord your God with every single ounce of your being. Your mind your body, your heart, your passions, your emotions, your interest, your decisions, your will, your work, your school, your friendships, relationships, every single aspect of it should be evaluated towards a love for God. That's what that means. He's not trying to say, okay, you've got eight different parts and like 
these three of the eight different parts you should love. No, what Jesus is saying and what Deuteronomy is saying, what God is telling us here, is if you are a follower of God, a child of God, every single component of your life should be consumed with a love for God. And the challenge with us and our as human beings is we generally as human beings have the wrong concept for what love is correct like when we think of love we think of emotions and like feeling good towards somebody and feeling like ooh I, he's cute she's cute i have these emotions right that can be a component of love but very often it's not and it changes nothing about your obligation to love love biblically speaking is a willful decision to act and serve the object of your love. So that means there's very often in the Christian life where you do feel those warm emotions towards God. If you're a follower of Christ, you have felt that. The gratitude that you have when you come to a place of knowing Christ, when you realize the sacrifice that he's made for you, when it is so obvious the millions of ways that he has blessed you in your life, it is very often in the Christian life you feel these warm feelings of love and joy and emotion towards God, and you should choose to willfully serve and worship and dedicate your life to God with all your being in those times. But guess what? There's going to be times in your Christian life where you don't feel those warm emotions. Where even though your mind intellectually knows that God has blessed you in infinite ways, and even though your mind intellectually knows that Jesus Christ has given everything to reconcile you to the Father, even when your mind intellectually knows the right things about God, you don't feel it. You're in a place, be it because of your circumstances or any number of things outside of your control, perhaps, or even your own sin. Who knows what? It could be any number of things where you just don't feel spiritually great. And it is hard, even though you know God is faithful, it is hard for you to understand it and see it in your current circumstances. And you feel terrible. You might even feel cold towards God. Guess what? Love is you still with all your heart soul and being dedicate yourself to the worship and service of god regardless of how you're feeling that is what biblical love is and what jesus and deuteronomy are saying is no matter how you feel make that willful choice to serve dedicate yourself love god with every ounce of your being that is biblical love. And that's exactly what the Shema tells us. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 is essentially, what's interesting here is it's essentially Moses, the whole passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, telling us that this law that the Pharisees are so proud of is based on the foundation of loving God with all that you are. And the, the, I promise you, every single person in earshot of Jesus as he's talking to the Pharisees would be familiar with Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. It's probably, for them, the most famous passage in the Old Testament. They would have all been taught it, memorized it from when they were young children, yet as intellectual, or as much as these people would have had that memorized from a very young age, Jesus would tell them, you have missed the whole point. Because the whole point is about loving God. Let me just read for you Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, they would have all known this. This is what Jesus quotes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What the Shema was all about was the law of God is built on a love for God. Love is the, is the guiding commandment. And the Pharisees, as much as they knew that passage, they had lost sight, missed the whole point of what the law was about to start with. As human beings, we were created to love God and have fellowship with God. But the Pharisees missed the whole point because they focused on their 613 laws but lost sight of what it meant to love God. And it turned their whole system into empty, worthless, man-made, man-centered system of legalism. But Jesus doesn't just stop there, does he? In Matthew 22, he doesn't just stop there. He says, this is, this command to love God with all your being is the great and foremost commandment, but Jesus is going to throw in a freebie. Like, he doesn't even let, y'all don't even have to ask. I'm going to give you a free freebie here, the second most com important commandment as well here. And, and I think, where does Jesus go? He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's something important for us to learn here as Christians in the church. While our relationship with God as people is of foremost importance, it's absolutely the most important, your relationship with God, it is not of sole importance. It is not, it's the most important, but not the only relationship that is important to God. Another relationship that is extraordinarily important to God and absolutely necessary for you to be a healthy Christian and follower of Christ is your relationship with one another, okay? Your relationship with one another is of critical importance, and we see it throughout the Bible. We see it throughout the Bible. If you think that you can live in a healthy relationship to God, yet not have healthy relationships with your fellow man, you're wrong. You're delusional. You're completely incorrect. And this applies to all human relationships, right? Think back to Galatians, the end of Galatians chapter 6. Paul tells the Galatians, like, you know, you should live in harmony and good relationships with all people as much as possible, but it's, and do good to all people, do good to all men, but especially those of the household of God. Have you ever heard people tell you like, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church? I'm a Christian, but I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says I have to go to church. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, most of the letters Paul wrote, if not all of them, I don't know, I got to think, well, he wrote to Timothy, right? But most of them are like, here's a letter to the church. Like, 1 Corinthians doesn't make sense apart from life in the church. Galatians doesn't make sense apart from life in the church. In fact, I would say none of the New Testament makes any sense apart from life in the church. You have to step back, you remove the church and take the church out of it, and you want, you'd have to step back at that point and say, I don't have any clue what a large portion of the New Testament's even talking about. Because it is talking about our life in the church and how we love and impact one another. And so think about that as you think about what Jesus says are the first two greatest commandments, the foundations for how we are to live as follower of, followers of Christ. Our relationship with God is foremost, but of critical importance to Jesus is how do we live with one another and how do we treat one another and this is not something isolated to what Jesus says right here but it is throughout the Bible over and over and over again and Jesus is going to quote another passage 
from the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 19.18. Again, this is the third time in these exchanges that we've been looking at in chapter 22 where Jesus is going to say to these people questioning him, trying to trap him, okay, you're such experts in the Mosaic Law. Well, let me remind you what it says. And he quotes Leviticus 19.18, verse 39. The second most important commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the conclusion that Jesus draws from quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, from quoting Leviticus 19.18, is really remarkable. He gives you the summary and the conclusion in verse 40. He says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That had to blow their mind. Because remember, for these people, they make a full-time life out of keeping this extraordinarily long list of laws, right? And just arguing and debating and going over all the details and nobody agrees and there's all these fights. Jesus says, hey, love God with every bit of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things, the whole law hangs. This principle summarizes the entirety of the law. The Pharisees, their focus is in all the wrong places. And this really highlights that. Their, fair, their focus is on self-righteousness, on pride, legalism, which God hates. And instead, Jesus says, the focus should be on loving God and loving people. And think about this. When you love God and love people, you're not going to get it perfect. That's why we need Jesus Christ to die for our sins, because it doesn't matter how well as a human being you love God and love people, you're going to make mistakes, right? Daily, throughout the day. I mean, that's just the nature of being human, and that's why Jesus Christ died, lived this life perfectly, paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, but through faith, his perfect life is credited to us so that we can be justified before God. So we can't do this perfectly, but do you see how, just from a practical standpoint, how when loving God with all your might and loving one another are the uh, guidelines of your life, you pretty naturally start to do the right things when it comes to obedience towards God and doing the right things towards other people. It's a natural outflow. It, you, you don't have to keep up with a list of 600 rules because go think through the Ten Commandments, right? Go think through the Ten Commandments and go read through those later. It's Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. You go read through them and they pretty neatly fall into two categories. The first category, the first part of the half of the Ten Commandments is about loving God. And the second half is about loving people. If you love God, think just if we're not going to go through all of them, but just think through. If you love God, are you going to have idols? Are you going to have other things that you place before God and worship instead of God? Not if you love God. And when you love God, those times that things do compete for worship in your life, unfortunately, we all fall into that sin from time to time. The Spirit points that out to you and you repent, right? Because you love God and you say, God, I'm sorry. I let this thing inadvertently become too big in my life and I need to repent and get my focus back on you. It, it, when, when you love God, are you going to treat his name with contempt? Taking his name in vain? No. Loving God is the foundation of the Ten Commandments. What about when you love people, the second category? When you love people, are you going to murder them? I, don't, I, I saw a few smirks, and it's just kind of funny to say, but it, it's the point, right? I mean, it's a foolish idea. If you love people, you're definitely not going to murder them, right? Um, if you love people, are you going to try to destroy their marriages and their families? 
If you love people, are you going to steal from them and rob them? If you love people, are you going to lie to them and about them? No. You see, you're not going to do it perfect as a follower of Christ. We need the grace of God every single day through Christ. But when you love God, when you love people and you strive for that, and you make that the foundational principle of your life, you're not running around just trying to figure out every rule and law all the time because you just naturally do the things that please the Father and naturally do the things that build one another up. And when you do inevitably make mistakes, you ask for forgiveness. And that forgiveness is there in the Father through Christ. And there's going to be times where you come across a situation, you're like, hmm, this is a little bit more challenging than my normal day-to-day decisions. And you're going to seek wise counsel, and you're going to dive into God's Word and say, God, I love you. I want to do what honors you. Show me what you want me to do. And you seek wise counsel and pray through these things. But you, you do see when the Pharisees misplaced their focus on self-righteous, legalistic keeping of the law, and they take their focus off of loving God and loving people, their whole system falls apart. And it's going to be the same for us, right? Like, if we take our focus off of loving God, off of loving one another, and we turn our focus on, okay, this is how good kids are supposed to act, right? We all know how good kids are supposed to act. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't cuss, you do good in school, you try to be respectful to adults, you start focusing on this legalistic, and that can become a prideful thing, right? Because all of a sudden people are like, hey, you're a good kid. You've got a good head on your shoulders. You're so respectful. You're so wise. You're so mature. Look how good you do in school. We're going to give you ribbons and trophies. It can become a prideful thing, right? And very quickly, you lose focus on loving God and loving people. Instead, you're now focused on this legalism thing where you just know I got to do good at school, be respectful, and people are going to praise me all the time. And the whole system can fall apart for you just like it does the Pharisees. You've got to constantly keep your focus on loving God with all your being, making that willful choice despite how you feel to serve, worship God, and despite how you feel towards one another. Love one another, right? Are you going to always feel great about each other? No. There's going to be times where you don't like something the people around you are doing. You don't like something specifically in a person you're interacting with. Jesus would say, love is to, despite how you feel towards that person, make the willful choice to do what you know is right towards that person. That's the third question in this series of questions, but now Jesus is going to turn the table. Now Jesus is going to say it is his turn to ask a question. Verse 41, Jesus is kind of like, well, I got you all here. Now that I got your attention, let me ask you a question. Verse 41. Um, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So this is part two. Jesus turned to ask a question. Verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So Jesus' turn to ask a question here, and the question is in verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Their answer is in verse 42 also. They said said to him, the son of David. Now, the Messiah, Jesus, is he the son of David? What would you say to that? Are Are they right? Are the Pharisees right that he's the son of David? Yes. They are right, yet they're not all the way right. 
and they don't know the fullness of who the Messiah is. They are right as far as they go because it was known that the Christ, the Messiah, would be a descendant of King David. In the fle- like from a fleshly standpoint, from a bloodline standpoint, the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. It was part of the Davidic covenant and God's promise to the Jewish people. And was this important for Matthew, that Jesus was a descendant of David? Yeah. Remember how Matthew starts out in chapter 1? I think it's like the first 17 verses of Matthew. Matthew traces out the lineage from Abraham, then through David, to Jesus, showing the kingly descent of Jesus Christ. That Christ, Jesus was part of the Davidic lineage, the, the bloodline of David. It was absolutely critical. So if they're right as far as this goes, what's the problem here? Well, the Pharisees were thinking purely from fleshly, worldly terms. Jesus is king, but he's not king of some earthly kingdom, of some temporal kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, is so much more. He is not just a fleshly descendant of David. He is so much more. God's plan, while they anticipated, they thought of Jesus, the Messiah, coming from an earthly standpoint to get rid of the oppressors, the Roman oppressors, the earthly oppressors, and establish the earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. God's plan is so much bigger. God's plan is for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ, to have an eternal reign over an eternal kingdom that will never go away. Jesus, the Messiah, was no mere man. He is no mere man. He is also eternal God. And so what Jesus is pointing to them, pointing out here, is that while Jesus is a physical descendant of David in the flesh, he pre-existed David in eternity past. That Jesus, sure, he's in front of them in this moment of historical history, but Jesus Christ is eternal, with no beginning and no end, existing outside of time. Jesus, the Messiah, existed before David ever was. That is what Jesus highlights in verses 43 to 46. In verse 43, this is what Jesus, the point he's making. If Christ is merely a descendant of David in terms of flesh, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. It was a psalm written by King David. But Jesus makes the point here. You know what he means when he says, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? The point that Jesus is making there is that when David wrote Psalm 110, it wasn't just David's words. It was the Holy Spirit inspiring in what David wrote, just as the Holy Spirit inspires all of Scripture. That's the mysterious thing that God does with the Bible. Is Does he use human authors to sit down with the pen and paper and write this out? Absolutely. But ultimately, it's the Word of God. It's the spirit-breathed word that we have, and it's the same thing in Psalm 110. Yes, David's the one who physically sat down and wrote this, but it is the word of God. I'm sorry if we're going to run out of time. I don't know if we got small. I'm going to try. Try here quickly. All right, I'm going to go fast. Um, 
That's what he means in verse 43, that David writes this in the Spirit. And actually, so when you take that into consideration, you really have the Trinity in Psalm 110, verse 1. So it's the Spirit speaking, and King David writing under the Spirit is essentially recording for us uh, um, a conversation between the Father and the Son, between the Father and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord. So you've got the, the Lord in all capitals here. When you see that, that means it's the Hebrew word for Yahweh, which is like the personal name of God that he gave to the Jewish people. And you've got Yahweh saying something to somebody that David refers to as my Lord, which is Jesus, the Messiah. So essentially you have Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is an Old Testament messianic psalm showing us that the Messiah would have an eternal kingdom, an eternal authority. That, because it is Jesus that is being referred to in Psalm 110, that Yahweh says to my Lord, David calls the Messiah my Lord, because he recognizes that this is the Messiah. Even though this is a fleshly descendant of King David, he is so much more. Like, no one ever calls their descendants Lord, right? Like, who has a great-grandparent in here? Have they ever called you Lord? Have they ever called you Lord, your great-grandfather or great-grandparent? No? Has anybody's grandparent ever called them Lord? Anybody's parent ever called them Lord? No, it's not going to happen, right? So why does David call his descendant, his, I don't know, great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, Lord? Well, it's because, in human terms, that makes no sense, right? But that is, it's because David recognizes that this descendant of mine is eternal Lord, existed before me. That's the question that, David, that Jesus is trying to get them to in verse 45. He says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? This is his descendant. Well, it's because King David knew that this Messiah that would descend from him is eternal Lord, eternal King, eternal God. So yes, Jesus was a physical descendant of David, but he is so much more. And sadly, the Pharisees did not understand this. They were thinking purely in human, earthly terms. So in verse 46, no one was able to answer Jesus a word, but he confounds them. Far more than not simply falling into the trap, he confounds them. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Do you recognize Jesus as eternal king? When we talk about Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as king, do you realize how big that is? This isn't some earthly kingdom. This isn't him coming in to overthrow the Romans and establish some earthly kingdom um, that would just last for a time in history and fade away like all other kingdoms. This is about an eternal, everlasting kingdom with absolutely no end. Do you realize that? I think the warning for us with the Pharisees here, it shows us that we can be intellectually knowledgeable about the Bible and even about a lot of things related to God and still completely miss the point. And if it can happen to them, it can happen to any of us, right? I mean, I'm very grateful that we go to a church that has a high view of Scripture. And we're focused really hard on learning a lot about the Bible because it is God's Word. And it is God's pure revelation to us. And so we rightly have a high emphasis on learning as much as we can about the Bible and studying it all the time. But do you realize you can learn the Bible intellectually and know a lot about God 
be amazing at memorizing scripture. Like we can quiz you and you can you, you know it all because you've been in a good church your whole life and you've had it taught, but you can still completely miss the point, just like the Pharisees. If you don't love God with all your being and love the church, that is your clearest sign that you have missed the whole point of everything you've learned. Jesus is an eternal king. He has rightful claim over your life. And when you recognize the sweetness of who Jesus is, you rejoice in that. And what Matthew would call us to is to recognize who Jesus Christ is and the fact that he came to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that through faith in him, we have eternal life, forever reconciled to the Father so we can enjoy the very fellowship that we were created for. That's what this week is all about. That's what Easter is all about. Like as we go through this week, don't lose sight of the fact that it is the Father, God, moving to make reconciliation with you and I who willfully chose to rebel against him. But he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that through him we can be forgiven. That is the eternal king that Matthew is pointing us towards. That is what Matthew would want us to know. And so just great opportunity for us as we go through this week to recognize what we're studying in Matthew is the very passion week that we remember this week. Recognize who Jesus is. Don't miss the point and give your life to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that you uh, reveal yourself to us and that you make it clear that you are the eternal son of God. And I just pray that um, our hearts would consistently, every day, all day, just be turned back to you, that we would um, find our forgiveness in you, that we would repent, turn from our sinfulness, and trust in your all-sufficient sacrifice. Pray you'd help us love each other and encourage each other as we go from here. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.